Hey, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, reading John 5, verses 31 through 47. This is God's Word, John, 1, John 5, starting in verse 31, and we're going to read through 47. Again, this is God's Word. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us by the power of your spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would speak, for we, your servants, listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 20 years ago, I served on my first and my only jury. I served with 11 women. I was the only Y chromosome in the jury room for the duration of the trial. There's probably a joke to be made there, but I didn't make it 20 years ago, and I'm not going to make it today. When you are the lone male juror, you would be wise to heed the words of Ecclesiastes 5.2. And let your words be few. It was a civil case. An employee was, employer was being sued by his employee uh, for wrongful termination. And in the end, we kind of came up with a compromise verdict. We determined that she was due some financial compensation, perhaps not as much as she was initially seeking in her lawsuit. Now, one uh, side note that's a little bit interesting is that this was taking place in New York City, and they were filming an episode of Law & Order in the, uh, in the courtroom on the last Last day of our trial. So as a big Law & Order fan, I got to see some of the actors from that show as we were filing out of the court. 
That was pretty cool. Well, this morning we're entering a different kind of courtroom. We know that because Jesus uses a Greek verb that we translate bear witness, martyreo, and the Greek noun we translate testimony, martyria, ten times in these 17 verses. The question is why? Why would Jesus use courtroom language when he's having a dispute with religious people over theological issues in the temple? Here's the answer. Because Jesus is presenting evidence. He wants to substantiate the theological claims that he's been making about himself and his relationship to God the Father in verses 18 through 30. According to Jesus, he is able to heal people on the Sabbath day because he's God. He's distinct from God the Father, and yet he's completely equal to God the Father. We talked about this a little bit last week. Ontologically, the Father and the Son are one. They are 100% the same. You'll remember Jesus said in John 10, I and the Father are one. Later on, when old Thomas was having some of his doubts, he said, he said, Thomas, how can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's ontology. God the Father, God the Son are one in the same. Economically, they play different roles in the drama of redemption. God the Father sent God the Son to secure our redemption by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because Jesus completed his mission on the cross by dying there in our place, by rising again, by ascending back to heaven from whence he came, we will be declared not guilty on judgment day if we believe in him. Now, many of us who have been Christians for a long, long time are fairly used to that. That's a brief summary of the gospel. But remember, this is a very bold, very controversial claim. Then and now, very few religious leaders have said, not only am I showing you the way to God, I am God. I will stand in judgment over you on judgment day. Whether or not you enter into eternal blessedness or eternal cursedness will come down to my verdict on your life. That's the claim. The question is, how do we know that's true? Is there any evidence? Is there any proof? Should we just take Jesus' word for it? Is that what faith is all about? Just believe. Just Close your eyes, uh, shut your ears, and just believe whatever he says without anything at all. No. According to Jesus, there is no such thing as blind faith. All faith is seeing faith. All faith is thinking faith. True faith, Christian faith, considers the evidence. Verse 31, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, you need multiple witnesses 
in order to arrive at the truth. That was true in Israel under Moses and the Old Covenant. It's still true today under Jesus and the New Covenant. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So how do we know that Jesus is telling the truth? How do we know that he really is the Son of God? How do we know that he's our Savior? How do we know that he's our King? How do we know that he rose again, that he ascended to heaven, and that he will come back someday to make all things new? How do we know that our sins are forgiven? Well, this morning, we are going to court with Jesus, and you get to be on the jury. In a stunning twist, Jesus is going to put himself on trial by presenting three witnesses who will testify on his behalf. Three witnesses who will substantiate the claim that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Now, a good attorney always lays out his case in the opening statement. So here's the case that Jesus is going to present to us, the jury, this morning. First, we're going to consider the personal evidence of John the Baptist. His luminescent life points us to the truth of the gospel. Second, we'll consider the empirical evidence of Jesus and the miracles. Could an ordinary person perform the miracles that Jesus performed? Could an ordinary person say, I'm going to rise from the dead and then rise from the dead and appear to several hundred people after his resurrection? Well, think about that. Third, we'll consider the scriptural evidence of Moses and the Old Testament. According to Jesus, the Bible is God's word. And when properly understood, it paints a portrait of Jesus on every single page. All right, are you ready to see the evidence? Are you ready to listen to the testimony? Are you ready to know the truth? Let's take a closer look. The first type of evidence that Jesus presents is personal evidence. The luminescent life of John the Baptist shows us that Jesus really is the Son of God. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So who is this John the Baptist figure that Jesus is mentioning here? Well, we do know that Jesus that John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus's mother Mary were sisters. During his ministry, he lived in the wilderness just outside of Jerusalem, and people came from miles and miles around to be baptized by him. 
His baptism was a little bit different than the baptism of Jesus Christ. His baptism was, strictly speaking, a baptism of repentance. When people came to be baptized by John the Baptist, they were essentially acknowledging that they were sinners who needed to be cleansed. They were sinners who desperately needed God's grace in order to be saved. He was a controversial figure because the religious leaders could not control him. In fact, he would often openly challenge the religious leaders, and yet they couldn't retaliate retaliate against him because he had the crowds on his side. He famously told the religious leaders, I am not the Christ, an important thing for all of us to remember, and described himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness which is a direct reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3, where Isaiah said that God would send one final prophet, a penultimate prophet who would prepare the way for Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Savior King. In John 1, we're told that John the Baptist bore witness, there's that word again, that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. Now, here's where it gets interesting, if it wasn't already. Here, Jesus describes John as a burning and shining lamp. He says that the people were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. In other words, John was a luminescent person. He was a radiant person. He was a man on fire. He gave people guidance and direction by pointing them to Jesus. When people were around John the Baptist, they rejoiced because of his integrity, because of his humility, because of his compassion. A rare combination then and now. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to know me, if you want to know that the gospel is good news for everyone who believes, if you want to know that I love you, if you want to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you need people like John the Baptist in your circle of friends. Do you have people like that in your life? Do you know people who are absolutely on fire for Jesus? Do you know someone who who glows with integrity and courage and compassion and generosity? Someone who's always pointing away from themselves. Someone who's always pointing other people to Jesus and the gospel. Do you know someone like that? Are you that type of person? Are you always testifying with your words and your actions that Jesus is the Son of God, that the gospel is good news for everyone who believes, good news of great joy for all kinds of people? Do other people rejoice when they're around you? Or are you always bumming people out? Uh Uh-oh. Not that guy again. Uh Uh-oh, 
here comes the church lady. Great. Everybody zip up. Time for fun is over. It turns out that there is a great difference, both theologically and practically, between a burning light and a wet blanket. <laughs> the former is lauded. The latter is condemned by no other person than Jesus himself. Now, why is this important? It's important because this is one of the ways that we know that God is real. This is one of the ways that we know, according to Jesus, that the gospel is true. The gospel changes lives. The gospel transforms people. When you meet a Christian with a luminescent light, someone who is just absolutely sparkles and glows and is on fire for the glory of Jesus, there's something inside of you that says, this must be true. How do we explain this person with so much integrity, so much courage, so much joy, so much ability to be steadfast and forthright and, and dedicated? Who is like this? Amazing. How do we explain this person who's never tearing people down, who never gossips, who never curses other people, this person who's always building people up and gossiping good news about others, not bad news, good news? Who's like this? Now, I have a few people like this in, in my life, and they are absolutely critical for reminding me that the gospel is true. Most of them are here in this room. Some of them are in the very front row. I have two that watch the service every week from their living room in California. They drink coffee during the service because it's their living room. And uh, so there are no rules about the coffee in their own living room. They're tremendously encouraging to me. Their luminescent lives of faith remind me that the gospel is true. Our lives are very powerful in that our lives have the power to tell a story. A story that testifies to the reality of Jesus and the gospel of his grace. It's probably what Jesus was talking about when he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Who is in heaven. That's the first witness, a luminescent man named John the Baptist. The first type of evidence, personal evidence, luminescent lives, changed lives. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and transformation for all who believe. Now, the second type of evidence that Jesus offers here is empirical evidence. Through the observable miracles that Jesus performed, we have empirical evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
one of the ways that we know that Jesus was more than a great leader, that he was more than a prophet or a teacher or an inspirational person, a spiritually enlightened individual, is the fact that Jesus performed miracles. We've seen some already in the book of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus famously turned water into wine at the wedding supper at Cana in Galilee. In this chapter, earlier in the chapter, John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed his entire life with a very word. He said, take up your mat and walk. And the man who had been paralyzed his entire life stood up, took up his mat, and walked. Next week in John 6, we're going to read about Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And you might wonder, as you hear about that miracle, why would so many hungry people be following Jesus around? 5,000 people is a lot of people. If we had 5,000 people show up to Pinewoods next Sunday morning, we might have to add a couple of chairs. So where do these people come from? Why are they following this uh, Jewish carpenter all around Galilee? Well, we're told in John 6, 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In other words, they saw the miracles. They saw that Jesus was healing sick people. In John chapter 3, we read the story about Jesus' encounter with a religious man named Nicodemus. Why would a respected Jewish leader, a man with more degrees than Fahrenheit, go in the darkness, in the night, to Jesus, a small town, Jewish carpenter, no official sanctioned training, to, to hear from him what he had to say? Well, Nicodemus tells us, this man came, John 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. When we get to John 10, Jesus will say, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I say that I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. While there are more than 40 specific miracles mentioned in the four Gospels, the Apostle John reminds us that Jesus performed many miracles which were not even mentioned in the Bible. John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Now you might think, okay, Pastor Joel, all right, I get it. The, according to the Bible, Jesus performed miracles. Well, of course, what is the Bible going to say? Isn't it say that he didn't perform miracles? It's the Bible. Well, you might be interested to know that there were actually sources outside of the Bible Hostile sources, Jewish sources, 
pagan sources that also testified that Jesus was a miracle worker. The Jewish Talmud, again, not a Christian text, charges Jesus with practicing magic. Now, that's an interesting charge, is it not? What they're essentially saying is he was performing miracles, but they were attributing those miracles to Satan rather than to God. They were saying his power comes from the devil and not from God, but they did not dispute the fact that Jesus was performing miracles. The claim was also uh, later repeated by a man named Celsus, who was a, a vocal opponent of Christianity. He had a famous debate with, I believe, Justin Martyr. Josephus, a Jewish historian, notes that Jesus was a doer of wonderful works. Now, the question is why? Why did Jesus perform so many miracles? Well, according to verse 6, the miracles are evidence. The miracles are a type of testimony. They point to the fact that Jesus is God. They paint a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. A place where nobody gets sick. A place where no one dies. Where there is no corruption or betrayal or adultery or divorce or hospitals or prisons. And all the churches are as full as they are on Easter Sunday. Because Jesus rose from the dead, the ultimate miracle Not only do we have proof that Jesus is God, since no ordinary person could rise from the dead, we have a picture of life and hope in the kingdom of God. Because because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus finished the work that he came to do. Because of the resurrection, we know that God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of God the Son. Because of the resurrection, we can know God loves us Because of the resurrection, we know that someday we will be with Jesus in paradise. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. Sometimes people in a modern age, a scientific age, have trouble with this, have trouble believing in miracles. The skeptics among us will say, well, things like just don't just happen. I mean, people aren't, bor- aren't born of virgins. People don't uh, heal the sick. You can't feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And people definitely don't rise from the dead. Well, my counter to that is that's kind of the point. The, kind of the, the point is that things like this don't happen all the time. Normally, virgins don't have babies, which is why we call her the Virgin Mary and not a Virgin Mary. When we talk about uh, the Virgin Mary, no one ever says, which one? There was only one. That's the point. It was a miracle. Miracles are, by definition, rare. Forgive the tautology, but they are, by definition, miraculous. You see? They don't happen all the time, which is why when they do happen, and they did happen quite frequently in the life of Jesus, we should pay attention. According to Jesus, the miracles point to the truth that he is God. They point to the truth that he is our Savior. They point to the reality that the gospel is good news. 
that it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Could a fraud do what Jesus did? The answer is no. That's exhibit B in Jesus' evidence. The third type of evidence is scriptural evidence. Through the unity and clarity of the Bible, we have scriptural evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Now, there's a lot here about Jesus' own view of the Bible. According to Jesus, the Bible is God's word. When the Bible speaks, God the Father speaks. The Father bears witness, you should note, through the Scriptures. Jesus acknowledges the human authors of the Bible, people like Moses, but he also points out that the purpose of Moses' writing was to point everyone everywhere to him. Verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. There are ultimately only two ways of understanding what the Bible is. It's either a human book written by people seeking God or it's a divine book written by a God seeking mankind. There is no third option. It's one or the other. And according to Jesus, the second answer is the correct answer. The Bible is a divine book written by God who is seeking people. See, the religious leaders had it completely backwards. They thought, if I master this book, if I do everything that this book says, if I model my life after the heroes and champions written in this book, then I will have eternal life. Jesus said, you can't master the Bible. The Bible has to master you. It's a book that shows us that we need a Savior before introducing us to that Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died so that we might live. Now, it's one thing to say that the Bible is the Word of God, the whole thing's about Jesus, and I could spend 20 minutes showing you how this passage connects to this passage and how this story foreshadows Jesus in this way or that way, but instead, I wanted to show you. So I've asked the people in the booth there, to put a slide on the screen. Just, just look at this. This is all the connections in the Bible illustrated. Every strand of the rainbow connects an Old Testament promise to a New Testament fulfillment. And sometimes there are multiple strands connecting multiple Old Testament texts with multiple New Testament fulfillments. And in the end, it's beautiful 
because it becomes a rainbow. The symbol of God's faithfulness. The symbol that God will always keep his promises forever and ever. Amen. Now, how does that happen? How could ancient people write a book like this? Well, it could only happen if the human authors of the scriptures wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible is a divine book, we can trust it. We can and should search it. We can and should read it. Because when we do, we will see that the whole Bible is all about Jesus. It's on every page. Let me give you a quote. This is uh, from Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a famous scientist, philosopher, a mathematician. He said this, If a single man had written a book foretelling the time and manner of Jesus' coming, and Jesus had come in conformity with these prophecies, this would carry infinite weight. If one person had done this, this would carry infinite weight. But there is much more here. There is a succession of men over a period of 4,000 years coming consistently and invariably one after another to foretell the same coming. There is an entire people proclaiming it existing for 4,000 years to testify to the certainty they feel about it, from which they cannot be deflected by whatever threats or persecutions they may suffer. This is of a quite different order of importance. The Bible, the whole Bible, from beginning to end, is living and active. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, testifies about Jesus on every single page. How do we know this is true? Read the Bible. Consider the evidence. See for yourself. Well, that's, that's the evidence. That is the testimony. We had the personal evidence in the form of luminescent people glowing and shining people like John the Baptist. We have the empirical evidence of Jesus and his miracles, the greatest of which was the resurrection from the dead. And we have the scriptural evidence, the Bible, which shows us Jesus on every page. And now, the verdict. Do you believe? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the testimony that you've given to us in your word, the testimony we see all around us through people whose lives have been absolutely and inexplicably transformed by your gospel, and we